The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are working our way through this fourth gospel. And we've seen as we've been going through that Lazarus was recording different miracles. He, he's, he's selective, he, and he picks out seven. And I think you know the number seven, you know, is the number of completion, the number of perfection. He picks out seven miracles. And uh, these are, first he starts out with turning the water to wine, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, giving a blind man his sight. But here is the climactic miracle of his earthly ministry. And he raises... The dead. That's a pretty significant miracle. And the interesting thing here, and the important thing here, it's not somebody who just passed away. It's someone's body who has begun to decay, has begun to putrefy. And it's important that we understand that this miracle wasn't done in some unknown village in the middle of nowhere. This takes place in Bethany, which is just outside the capital city of Jerusalem. And it's witnessed by a bunch of people who are there to mourn Lazarus' death. Now, for Yeshua's enemies, who were the Jewish leadership, this was the straw, the raising of Lazarus. This is the straw that broke the camel's back, per se. All right, This is the miracle that, uh, that, and its effects that really pushed the leadership to do away with him and ends up at the crucifixion. So keep that in mind. This is that miracle that sent him over the edge. Now, Let's review for a second here what we've seen. We saw that in the first six chapters of this Gospel, Yeshua's popularity is really on the rise. And in chapter 6, it's the peak of His popularity. Remember what happened in chapter 6? That got to be, He's got to be so popular? should be easy. If you want a crowd, all you got to do is what? Feed them. Alright? He fed the 20,000 and everyone, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of popularity there. And they say, uh, in this chapter, you know, Yeshua perceiving it says that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king. We like this guy feeds us. Let's make Him king. Yes, this is, the, this is it. This is the top of His popularity. But when we get on in the end of the chapter, after Yeshua's been teaching for a while, we find this verse, 666. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walk with them. You know, remember in this teaching, Yeshua said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they're like, this guy's off, man. We're, we've done. We're, we had enough. It's too hard. The teaching's too hard, and they begin to depart. So opposition to Yeshua from the Jewish leadership really began in chapter 5 when Yeshua heals the paralytic man on the Sabbath. And what really got them infuriated was He defended His actions on the Sabbath by saying, I'm equal to God. Now that really got them ticked off, all right? So Yeshua then retreats to Galilee in chapter 6 where He feeds the 20,000. He's teaching them on the bread of life. That's the teaching there. And this feeding miracle, of course, you know, demonstrates He said, I'm the bread of life, and then He fed them. Then in chapter 7, Yeshua returns to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. The issue of the healing of the paralytic man on the Sabbath is once again raised. You know, they're still mad about that. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests send out the temple police to arrest Yeshua. Well, they return empty-handed. Do you remember what their excuse was for not arresting him? 
I said, no one ever taught like this man teaches. Wow, this guy's a great teacher. You guys ought to hear. They're like mad. You know, you're sent to arrest him. Well, in chapter 8, Yeshua claims to be the light of the world. Then in chapter 9, he demonstrates that by giving sight to a man who was blind from birth. Then in chapter 10, Yeshua claims to be the good shepherd. And he implies that the Jewish leaders are thieves and robbers who abuse the sheep. So again, the leadership try to kill them, but once again, they fail. So Yeshua leaves Judea once again. He travels back to the other side of the Jordan where John the Baptist had ministered. And while ministering there, people are coming to believe. They're coming to faith in Christ. So there's a revival going on over there. And then some messengers show up that Mary and Martha had sent. And they tell him, he who you love is sick. So Yeshua says, okay, so let's hang around here for a couple more days. We're having a good ministry. Let's just keep on doing it. So they stayed there. They kept on ministering for two more days until, now here's what you got to understand in this text. When the messengers get to him, he says, he whom you love is sick. And then Yeshua says, this sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God. So he's still alive. Then he waits two days and he says, Lazarus has died. So now we know he's dead. They leave to get there. When they get there, it's four days later. So this trip took them four days. Now, you know, I know there's, the geography here is hard to figure out, but the trip took them four days. All right? So they go back. Lazarus has died. They take the four-day journey. And that gets us up to where we're at now. Now, let me just break, remind you how this chapter breaks down or how we're breaking it down. Um, verses 1 through 16 deal with the setting in the background. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Verses 17 through 33 focus on the dialogue with Martha and Mary. He's talking to the sisters. We looked at that last week. This morning we're looking at verses 34 to 44, which describe the trip to the tomb and the raising of Lazarus. And then we'll look at the reaction next week. Now, before we get into our text today, let me just remind you because I've been thinking about this and haven't said it yet. There's two Lazarus in the Gospels. Anybody know where the other Lazarus is found? You're close. Luke 16. Okay, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You know, and the scholars are debating whether this is the Lazarus, the same Lazarus or not, but when you really break down the timeline, you find out that they're two different guys. Okay, so I don't think this is the same Lazarus as we see in the parable. All right? Now, we ended last week with this verse in 33. When Yeshua saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. This is a very debated verse as to why it is that Yeshua is deeply moved. Why is he greatly troubled? And the majority of commentators, the majority of scholars say he's angry. Because these terms are used in other places for the idea of anger, I don't see that, and I don't think that's right. Now, notice what the text says. When Yeshua saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, that moved him. So he sees them, they're sorrowful, they're grieving. So he sees that emotion that they're dealing with, and so he's grieved over that. This is a very important aspect of the story because here we see the God whom Yeshua reveals and that's what He says. I'm here. I am showing you the God of glory. I am revealing the God. What I do, He does. What I say, He says. And so we hear, we see, we see the God of glory as a compassionate, caring God. And I think that's really important. Peter put it this way. 
casting all your cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. That's a good thing to know. Because have you ever been in that position where you didn't feel that way? (laughs) Things weren't going quite the way you wanted them to. You said, does God really care? Yes, He does. The sovereign God of the universe who orders every event cares for us. I think that ought to give us comfort in the midst of trials. Believers, our God is a compassionate God. Now, when you think of God as compassionate, what text comes to your mind in Scripture? Do what? John 3.16? That's a good verse. God loved the world. Psalm 23? Okay. Let me tell you what comes to my mind. When I think of God as a compassionate God, I think of the prodigal son. You know, the son ends up broke, takes his inheritance, spends it all, ends up in a pig pen, broke. He decides to go home and ask the father, can I be a hired servant? And I want you to notice the father's response here, because I, I just, this is incredible. He arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. In other words, the father was watching, looking, and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. You know, if we wrote that story, we'd say the father saw him and was really ticked off. I'm going to straighten his son out when he gets back here. I'm going to show him who the boss is and I'm going to show him how bad he It doesn't say any of that stuff. You know, here God runs to the repentant sinner. So Yeshua's emotion in our text remind us that He is both fully divine and fully human. And therefore, He experiences all the depths of the emotions that we feel. He understands what it's like. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. So Yeshua's deeply moved by all this grief, and he asked them, take me to the tomb. So they take him there. And verse 35 says, Yeshua wept. Now the Greek verb translated wept here as dakuro, and it means to tear up in the eye, to shed tears. This is a different Greek verb then translated weeping in John 11.33. That's klio, and it means to wail. So Yeshua wept as in the sense of He's shedding tears. He's standing there shedding these tears while the people around Him are wailing and screaming. And this, you know, we see Him standing there weeping at the tomb. This fits the pro- prophetic picture that we see in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew what grief was. He understood that. And he's standing there. People you know, want to question, why is he weeping? He's going to raise Lazarus in a minute. What's the big deal? Well, I think Yeshua's tears clearly demonstrate his compassion for humanity. And there's three times in the New Testament we're told that Yeshua wept. Three times. Here, He wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19. And He wept in Gethsemane, according to Hebrews 5.7. So three different times. You got by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. Three times we see the Lord in tears. Now, i got a really tough question for you here. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Well, not really. It is the shortest verse in the English Bible. 
But the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always is 14 letters in the Greek, and Yeshua wept is 16. Okay? <laughs> now, many people, you know, if you want to start a Bible memory program, most people want to start with John 11.35. You know, and they work on this verse, and they get it down, and they say, there, I got a verse down. Well, now you got two. You can work on 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Let these be the first two verses you start with, right? And it'll really get your memorization program kicked off. Uh, let me give you a little Bible trivia here. I know, I know. Just relax a second. There's no, nothing trivia about the Bible. I know that. But you'll understand when I get into this, okay? When the Bible was written, there was no chapter and verse divisions. You understand that? Boy, that would be tough for me. Wouldn't it? How am I going to... Well, turn in your Bible to John and then go about halfway through and, you know, it'd be really tough to, you know, this is what it would look like. I'd pull up verse and you go, where'd you get that from? You know, you'd have to have it memorized so you could know where this is, you know, where this is coming from. Well, the man responsible for dividing the Bible into chapters was Stephen Langton. And he did this in the 13th century. Well, then, in the 16th century, Robert Stephanus divided the chapters into verses. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. I mean, it'd be really hard to teach the Bible without chapter and verse divisions. Like I said, I, you know, we couldn't be on the same page. I'd be showing you verses, and you'd be trying to find them in Scripture. You'd be, is he making stuff up? Because it would be hard to nail that down. And, and think about this for a second, okay? When the apostles, when Yeshua, they didn't have any chapter and verses in the scrolls. So when Yeshua stood up in the synagogue and took the scroll and turned to, how did he get there? Isaiah is just one solid book. How did he turn to that chapter like that? Well, he had the thing memorized, okay? So he knew what he was looking for. So these chapter and verses are helpful but on the other hand, it has been said the first step in interpretation is to ignore chapter and verse divisions. Okay, so they're helpful. They help us find things, but I want you to realize they're not inspired. So when a chapter ends a new, over oh, in a new subject now, not always. So just kind of ignore them as you're doing your study, but they're useful when you want to find something. All right? Okay, <clears throat> now, it says, so the Jews said, see how he loved them. Yeshua is standing there weeping, and the Jews, this crowd of mourners who were there, remember, they followed Mary, they saw Mary going, and they just they all got up, and they headed to the tomb with them. So we got a big crowd there at the tomb. And they say, wow, he's standing there crying over this Lazarus guy? He really loved him. This is the third time in this chapter we're told that Yeshua loved Lazarus. Again, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, we're establishing this. He loves him. And what makes this really important is Lazarus is the only man in the Bible who is said to be loved by Yeshua. The only one. And in this chapter, the Spirit of God has impressed three times Yeshua loved Lazarus. That's important. And then some of them said, now the Jews are talking, hey, um, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? See, Yeshua's healing of the blind man had occurred several months earlier, but obviously it left an impression on the crowd, and they're still like, hey, you guys remember that? He did that? That was a pretty big miracle. 
So this crowd of mourners have no doubts about the reality of Yeshua's miracle of healing the man born blind. And I think their question is really a natural one. You know, they say, since Yeshua has performed such powerful miracles, why didn't He heal this man that He loved? See, they couldn't reconcile Yeshua's love and power with Lazarus' death. Now, wait a minute. This just doesn't work out. This guy, he's crying. He loved this guy. But he's got power. Why didn't he, why didn't he do something? I'm sure you've heard things from people, comments like that, right? If God is love, why do you allow this to happen? You ever heard that before? Maybe you thought it yourself. That's really an accusation against God's love is what it is. If He's love. Well, He is love. Okay? The Bible says God is love. But many question that when tragedy strikes. Some say it's not fair that innocent people suffer. Or it's not fair that babies die. Or it's not right that men like Hitler and Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy were even allowed to live at all. There's no justice when good people struggle and and wicked people prosper. It's just not right. Well, some years ago, Rabbi Harold Kirshner wrote a best-selling book entitled Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Something wrong with that title already, okay? The Bible says there is none good, no, not one. So Kirshner's off when he starts bad things happening to good people, okay? He's off. Well, in the book, he wrestles with difficult questions from a very personal point of view. He lost a son, and so he's struggling with all that. And in effect, comes up with this conclusion. God is either good, and He's not all-powerful, or He's all-powerful, and He's not good. He says you can't have it both ways. Well, Kirshner's wrong. Okay? The Bible from beginning to end teaches the absolute goodness and the absolute sovereignty of God. The problem is we're always looking at goodness from our perspective. Good is what makes our life easy. Good is what makes our life pleasant. Good is what makes us happy. That's good to us. It's probably not too good to God, some of these things. So these mourners are saying, He's powerful. He gave a man sight who was blind from birth. Why did He not heal Lazarus? Well, as I'm going over this, I'm thinking, I'm sure that this past week, there was a lot of Christians who were questioning God over the death of Nabil Qureshi. He died last Saturday, September 16, at the age of 34, after a year-long battle with stomach cancer. Left a young child, left a wife. And when I heard it, I was grieved. I thought, Lord, you could have taken somebody else. This guy's got a powerful ministry. He was an awesome speaker. He, he was used greatly, you know, and he was a Pakistanian Muslim and he came to faith in Christ and he was just used greatly by the Lord. So I'm like, Lord, why did you take him now? I certainly didn't question the love of God or the power of God, but I did, I'd like to have known why, Lord, him. So this crowd questions why Yeshua let Lazarus die. Well, you know, we know why. Because he told us. In verse 4, he says, When Yeshua heard, it was said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So here we're told that Lazarus' illness and his death were for the glory of God. So it should be obvious that sometimes believers are sick, sometimes believers die 
for the glory of God. You know, sometimes we can't figure it out because we're not all that smart anyway, all right? But God does things for His glory, and sometimes it's the sickness and the death of His people. Verse 38 says, Then Yeshua, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. The word deeply moved here again is embrimomai. And it means move with the deepest emotion. This is the same verb used in verse 33. Yeshua is very touched with compassion as He enters into the grief of those gathered here to mourn the death of Lazarus. I mean, this, this text really stresses Yeshua's emotion. So it says, He came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now, the rich in these days, and even those who were moderately well-to-do, had tombs. And these tombs were often inherited or passed down. They would get them prepared long before. You know, they didn't wait for someone to die and then go to the funeral home and figure it out. They had this stuff ready. All right? Now, according to Patterson, he says this, in accordance with local custom, Lazarus would have been buried within 24 hours of his death. But Middle Eastern funeral customs meant that this wasn't cremation or being placed in a hole in the ground. Rather, as was common among the Jews, the dead were buried in caves, whether man-made or natural. And in those caves, they would construct or carve out a little room or chamber in which the body would be laid, wrapped in a linen sheet, the head covered with another cloth, A stone was then rolled over the mouth of the cave to keep out stray animals and to keep in vile odors. The plan was that one year after the death, the family would return to the burial chamber and recover the bones from which the flesh had by now rotted away and store those bones in a little box that would be kept in a hole in the wall of the outer burial chamber. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that archaeologists have found these bone boxes in Bethany that had the names on them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay? So that's what they did. After a year, they go back, collect the bones. You know, that way the tomb can be used by other people, okay? No sense taking up all this tomb and now just got a little bit of bones. They put them in the bone box and they put them in a niche in the wall. Now, according to the Talmud, the burial niches were usually six feet long, nine feet wide, and ten feet high. And the entrance was sealed by a large round stone that rolled in front of the opening in a channel. They'd cut this channel there that they could roll this stone in. Or sometimes they were sealed with a plug-like stone. Now that'd be, that'd be a big stone to take and plug that hole up. You know, I can't even imagine that. But uh, Now, we've talked about this before. The Jews did not embalm. You know, Egypt did that. Egypt did an embalming thing. we got mummies today still. But the Jews didn't embalm because they believed that mankind came from dust and he's supposed to go back to dust. So they said, no, just let him rot away, let him go. And I've read that the Jews often watched the grave for three days, sitting around the grave watching, believing that the soul could return to the body within that time frame. We talked about that before, because on the fourth day, decomposition is really you know, moving and it's, it's all disfigured and then the Spirit says, ah. I don't even want that body anymore. It moves on. All right? Now, the fact that this family, Lazarus' family, could afford a burial cave, it's just another indication that the family wasn't poor. They weren't destitute. And this burial site sounds really familiar with the burial site of our Lord. And I wonder if there's, you know, is that just a coincidence? 
because the Lord's burial site was the tomb of a wealthy man, all right? Joseph of Arimathea. Look at Matthew 27, 60. Speaking of Christ, and they laid it in his own new tomb. This is Joseph's tomb. They took Christ, put him in it, which had been cut in the rock. See, he was, wasn't a natural cave. They cut this one into the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance in the, of the tomb and went away. So we have both are in the tombs. They're both in caves. The stones rolled. I mean, they sound like the same place. All right? So Yeshua is now standing at Lazarus' tomb. And he says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there'll be an odor. He's been dead four days. Martha, the sister of the dead man. Does that sound strange to you? The sister of the dead man. What? Why don't you say Lazarus? I think it's because Lazarus is writing this. And so instead of referring to himself, he just said, oh, the dead guy. Me. That's me, the dead guy. I love this. <laughs> I love the King James here. And the King James says, Lord, by this time, he stinketh. Okay? There's an odor. He stinketh. Obviously, Martha's not expecting Yeshua to perform any miracle here. Lord, we don't want to open that thing. That smells. You know, <laughs> I love this here about Martha. You know, she, we already talked about her. She's the servant, but she's got a theological mind. She knew her eschatology. She understood some things. All right, she had a good... A good grasp on eschatology. And she, she's not appealing to the Lord here. Lord, um, you know, we're not allowed Jews. We're Jews. We can't get near a dead body. We'll be unclean. Let's not do that. No, she says, let's not open it because he stinks. And see, Martha is a servant. And so she's always considering others. And so she's afraid. I don't want my guests to have that smell, that nasty odor. I read this stuff and I just think of my wife. This is like my wife would be there. No, no, don't open that. It stinks. Okay. And it's the idea that caring about other people around here, you know. She did, so obviously she agreed to it. Okay, you can do it. But she goes, he's been dead four days. Over and over in this text, we've been told this, all right? This is extremely significant for our understanding of what actually took place. There's no doubt that Lazarus was really dead because the decomposition of his body had begun to take place. Again, the Jews did nothing to stop decay. They would wrap the body and they'd sprinkle some spices on it to help mitigate the smell a little bit, but that's it. Here's what happens to a dead body according to the Australian Museum website article entitled Stages of Decomposition. I'm not going to get too depth here because I don't want to totally ruin your lunch, all right? But initial decay happens from zero to three days. According, although the body shortly after death appears fresh from the outside, the article says, the bacteria that before death were feeding on the contents of the intestine begin to digest the intestine itself. They eventually break out of the intestine and start digesting the surrounding internal organs. So right after death, the body just starts dissolving itself. The body's own digestive enzymes, normally in the intestine, also spread through the body, contributing to its decomposition. Then they go to the next stage, putrefaction, four to ten days after death. It says, bacteria break down the tissues and cells, releasing fluids into body cavities. They often respire and in absence of oxygen and produce various gases, including hydrogen sulfide, methane, and <laughs> I love this. It says, people might find these gases foul-smelling. 
Thank you. That was a helpful part of that article. I'm glad they put that in there, you know, because we wouldn't have figured that one out. The buildup of gas resulting from the intestine activity of the multiplying bacteria creates pressure within the body. And this pressure inflates the body and forces out fluids. Okay? The decomposing... Well, I just washed my tongue, can't do a thing with it. (laughs) The tissue that's rotting (laughs) takes on a horrific look and smell, and the body kind of emits this green liquid within about 72 hours. All right, so the body's all bloated, it's nasty, it's leaking, it doesn't look like anything like it should. This is the condition of Lazarus when Yeshua arrives. And that's important. That's why Mary says, I don't think we want to open that. Everybody knows he's dead. As Martha said, he stinketh. All right? So Yeshua said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Yeshua makes a connection, I think, between what he is doing now and what he said back in verse 4, where he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, he's talking to Martha, and she wasn't there when he said this earlier, because he was still on the other side of Jordan. But this can be taken as a summary of what was promised in verses 23 through 26, because to raise somebody to life who has died is a manifestation of the glory of God. What does he mean by seeing the glory of God? Well, talking about Yeshua's first miracle in this gospel of turning water to wine, we're told this. This, the first of his signs, Yeshua did in Cana, a Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So these works performed by Yeshua are not just supernatural acts, they are signs that unveil the glory and power of God. That's why he's doing it. He's not a magician putting on tricks, he's demonstrating the power of God. So Lazarus understands the miracle at Canaan to reveal the glory of God. His power to create manifested His glory, and so will His power to raise the dead. Now, this chapter starts with the mention of glory, and now we're again in glory again in this verse. So, it's kind of an inclusion within the chapter. But I think this chapter also forms an inclusion with 2.11 and the first miracle. So, that brings the first and the last miracle together. They're both, the purpose of these miracles is the glory of God that the Glory of God would be manifest. Verse 41 and 42 said, So they took away the stone, and Yeshua lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now what Yeshua was doing before he raised the dead was to show the people that he acted in absolute reliance with the Father. A total obedience to the Father. Alright? He says, they took the stone away. I would guess that those who moved that stone got a good smell of dead Lazarus. Alright? Now, I've never smelled a dead body, but I've heard from people who have, and it's like, you don't forget that smell. They said, and even if you've never smelled it before, you know what it is. It's that bad. But can you even imagine being there? I mean, this crowd standing around the tomb, and the Lord goes, 
take a stone away. And they're like, oh, okay. So they're rolling the stone away. And they're like, <laughs> you know, they're gagging. And the people are like, what? what's happening here? What are they going to do? And as they roll that stone away, those people must be staring like, okay, what's he going to do? What's going to happen now? I mean, they've got to be thinking, what in the world is he doing? This guy's really dead, and here he is doing this. So it says, Yeshua lifted up his eyes, and he said, now, he looks to heaven not because God is physically up there. You know, that's not the idea. This just was a posture in prayer. He wants those who witness this event to realize that God the Father is the source of this miracle. Now, notice what he asked for in prayer. Father, I thank you. What does he ask for? Lord, I, I hope you raise this guy. Would you pre- please? None of that. He doesn't ask for a thing. He doesn't petition God to intervene. doesn't ask for anything. Instead, he begins with thanksgiving for what God has already done. They roll away Tony, stone and he says, Father, I thank you. You know, what's interesting to me is this is how Paul said we are to pray. In Philippians 4.6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything. That's a command, by the way. Then he says, But... In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, the words with thanksgiving here in the Greek are meta eucharistia. And meta in the genitive means with. But meta in the accusative, this is meta in the accusative here. It never means with, it always means after. So let's change it. After thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why is Paul saying that instead of you know, just crying out to God with our difficulty, doubting our question. He says, start by saying thanks. I really think this is how we're to pray. It was too often we run into the presence of God. We're like, gimme, 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 gimme. You know, I need this, I need that guy. You know, and here we see the Lord, and here we see Paul saying, listen, when you go to God, go with thanksgiving. And I'll tell you what, I found if you start thanking God, and you, you start really counting the blessings you have and what you're thankful for, by the time you get done, you're like, ah, never mind, I don't really need anything. I'm good. I thought I need some, but now that I see all I have, I don't really need much, God. But he says, that's how you start. Start with thanksgiving. And that's what the Lord does. You know, I think if you have a thankful heart too, your prayers are going to be right, because you're going to realize, wow, I really don't need that. Here we see Yeshua modeled this that Paul tells us we ought to do. Father, I thank you. He says, now, this is one of the few times in the Gospels that we see a public prayer of our Lord recorded. He prays with his eyes open and raised to heaven. That's the Jewish custom. And our our Lord's prayer demonstrates the truth of 5.19 and following, that Yeshua does nothing by himself, but is in totally dependence upon the Father. Now, notice that his prayer does not specifically petition the Father to raise Lazarus. He spoke as though the raising of Lazarus was something that the Father already decreed. Which is true. Because verse 11, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This is part of the plan of God. So he's not asking God to do anything. He knows the plan. He's just thanking him ahead of time. And commenting on Yeshua's prayer life, Paul Miller observes this. If you know that you, like Jesus, cannot do life on your own, then your prayer makes complete sense. Which, let's reverse that. 
If prayer doesn't make any sense to you, it's because you think you can do life on your own. And I've often said that prayer is a declaration of dependence. When you pray, whatever you pray, whenever you pray, you're saying, God, I need you. And when you're not praying, you're saying, God, I don't need you. Sit back and watch. I got this. All right? Hudson Taylor, the great pioneer missionary to China, said this, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Again, dependence. All I can do is what you do through me, Lord. And that's the idea of prayer. We are praying in dependence on God. And here, the Lord starts out this tremendous miracle just by thanking the Father. Verse 43 says, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! He cried out with a loud voice. He doesn't mumble under his breath. He's not whispering this. The crowd hears this because I don't think they're... He doesn't want them to have any doubt that his cry and this man coming back to life are connected. All right? Hey, just happened to... He's standing there, you know, just standing there. All of a sudden, this guy comes out. No, he's calling him out. And he says, Lazarus, come out. That's it. No fanfare. No speaking in tongues. You know, no trumpets. Just, Lazarus, come out. Anybody know what Augustine says about this? He says if he had not said Lazarus, the whole cemetery would have come out. <laughs> it makes sense, right? The dead will hear the voice of God and the dead will raise. Well, the dead are hearing the voice of God. And you know, as we look at the Scriptures, our Lord used different methods to perform His miracles of healing. His method of raising the dead was always the same. There's three recorded in the Scripture. Always arise, come out, come forth. You know, He's calling them to life. So, our Lord speaks to the dead as if they heard Him. He's dead, right? He's in that tomb and He's dead and He's swole up, stinking, rotten, and He says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus says, I can't, I'm dead. <clears throat> Do you know why He speaks to him that way? Because He knew that they heard Him. You say, well, how can a dead man hear? Well, look at, let's back up to verse chapter. Chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now that's, that's an oxymoron. Dead, dead don't hear. And those who hear will live. Listen, the voice of the Son of God is a sovereign call that creates life. This verse, 25 here, is fleshed out in Lazarus. He's taught this, and he said, the dead are going to hear my voice, and they're going to live. And now they're seeing this. The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Yeshua said to them, unbind him and let him go. Again, why does he say that? The man who died came out. Why didn't he say Lazarus? Again, it's because he's the author. I think he just puts it this way because he's writing about himself and he doesn't want to say Lazarus. And so what we have here, the man who was dead came out. This means that when he spoke to him, 
when he says, Lazarus, come out, that that putrefying, rotting corpse, all of a sudden, the blood started flowing. The bodily fluids all went back to where they're supposed to be. He resuscitated the heart and the lungs all in a second by the power of His Word. I mean, He's bloated, He stinks, and all of a sudden, He's standing at the mouth of the tomb. Because He is the resurrection and the life, His voice commands the one who has been dead for four days, and He comes out. By His Word, He calls forth the dead. Just as in the original creative act at the beginning of time, the Word of God brought things into existence. Here, the Word of God speaks and the dead come to life. This is the seventh sign. And He's given physical life. It's a sign of His power to give eternal life. And that's what we have to understand. These signs have a reason. You know, He says, I'm the bread of life, and then He feeds. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and He gives life. It's a proof that He said on the last day I will raise the dead. This is a proof. We see Him raise the dead. Now something I found interesting in my studies was that in the catacombs in Rome, dating from the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries, there are over 150 representations of Lazarus rising from the dead as a gift of life. In other words, this thing was big to them. Like, I mean, this guy brings dead people to life. Okay? So they, they wanted to remember this, and they wrote it down many times. It says, His hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. The corpse was customarily laid on a linen sheet, wide enough to wrap over the body, but it was set on the thing so the feet were at the end, and it was twice as long, and they would wrap it over and back down, and they would tie up the feet, tie up the arms, so it's you know this little wrapped up thing sitting there. They'd put something over the face, put a cloth over it, so I want to ask you, how do you come out of the tomb when you're bound up like that, hand and foot? Hop, okay. <laughs> that would be, I guess, the only way you get out. You just hop out of there. Many scholars have called this a miracle within a miracle. Because when you think about it, okay, how did he get to the, how did he get up? Huh? Yeah, how do you, you know, how does he get up? How, how does he do anything? You know, all of a sudden, bang. Well, listen. Just a few minutes ago, Lazarus was an oozing mass of decaying, bloated flesh. So if Yeshua could call him forth and make him new, I don't think it's any problem to have him hover over to the entrance of the tomb or however he got there, and he's there. He's at the mouth of the grave now, and he's just standing there. And the people are like, oh my word. He doesn't stink anymore. I bet he even dispersed that odor, so you know, no longer do you smell that dead smell. Because now there's life. And he says to him, unbind him and let him go. The witnesses to this resurrection, those who are there to mourn Lazarus, get involved in this miracle. You know, they're standing there, and Yeshua says, roll this stone away. So they do. I mean, they help out. They move the stone. And then they stand back, and Yeshua says, Lazarus, come out. And he says, okay, go unwrap him. So they're like, they're really participating in what's going on. And they're... They might even been scared to unwrap him. Ooh, this is going to be gross, you know? And they're wrapping and it's like, hey, it's Lazarus. It looks good, man. You don't look a day over dead. You know, so they're excited about this. Well, what is the significance of unwrapping Lazarus? What's this about? Why, I mean, why does he, why didn't he just come out? Why did the guy say, go unbind him and let him go? 
Well, first we need to understand that this physical resurrection of Lazarus is a picture of spiritual resurrection. He demonst- he's demonstrating the power to give life, spiritual life. This miracle is to conform the statement of Yeshua in verse 25 on the resurrection and life. It confirms that. It authenticated Yeshua's authority to give eternal life to those who believe in Him. So this resurrection of Lazarus is an acted out parable of Christian conversion. We're coming to faith. We're being brought to life. It's a picture. Okay? you got to get that. That's why He's doing this. All these signs, He's demonstrating stuff through these signs. So let me ask you this. What part did Lazarus have in His resurrection? Huh? That's right. By His free will, He said, Lord, I'd like You to raise me from the dead. If You call me, I'll respond with my free will. So, Yeshua said, Lazarus, come out! Lazarus said, let me think about it. It's up to me. I'm not sure if I want life or not. Let me lay here and smell this rotten flesh for a little bit before I come out. As a dead, rotting man, he pictures sinners who are dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 For you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead. So that's what he's picturing here. He didn't have anything to do. He didn't help out in any way. He was cut off from the life of God. He was dead. As a dead man, Lazarus had no power to raise himself, to even think about raising himself. He never considered being alive again because he was dead. And he needed new life that only comes from God. So that's the picture here. We got He's not sick. He doesn't need some medicine of the Gospel. He's dead. He needs life. And that's what God gives. Look at John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Alright? So when someone comes to salvation, it's because God has given them life. Unbind him and let him go. So Lazarus is a dead man, but yet he hears the voice of the Lord. And that's the miracle of the power of God through the Word of God. He's dead. But he can hear because the Word gives life. That's how the dead come to life. He was given the power to hear, and he responds. And it's the same thing true of us in a spiritual life. We're given the power to hear, we're given life, and we respond. So, is there any symbolic significance to this unbinding him and letting him go? Unwrap him, guys. Go unwrap this guy. Well, maybe there is, okay? Let me just surmise here for a while, okay? When we're given new life by the Lord, we're still very bound by our old life. I mean, all of a sudden, boom, in an instant, we come to faith in Christ and we belong to Christ, and all of a sudden, everything gets perfect in our life, right? No, we still got a lot of the grave clothes around us. And I think the Lord's saying to those who are in fellowship with this, unwrap them, help them out. Help him as he moves forward. And I think that's what happens in our life. As we get involved in a Christian fellowship and our friends and our loved ones help us out through the Scripture, we begin to unwrap those grave clothes and begin more and more to look like the Lord. That's the goal anyway. We're to walk as He walked. Now, this raising of Lazarus, I said, is the third resurrection miracle in the Gospels. Anybody know what the other two were? Okay, the widow's son at Nain. And 
Jairus' daughter, okay? Two, same thing. He says, I say to you, little girl, arise. Stops the coffin, get up. You know, even if we go back to the old covenants, the prophets who raised the dead were Elijah and Elisha. They both raised the dead. So what's the, what's the difference between these old covenant resurrections and the gospel accounts of these other resurrections of Jairus' daughter and the widow of Nain's son compared to the miracle of Lazarus? What's the difference? Well, that's right. They went to a lot of different, you know, they did this and did that and, you know. But also the big difference was those other resurrections occurred immediately after death. No decomposition, just boom, you know, raise them back up. This is four days later. Decomposition is big in this story. They want you to get that this guy is just rotten apart, okay, when he's brought back to life. His body was gone. All right. Now, this is an awesome story, right? Lazarus is dead and now he's alive. It's an awesome story unless maybe you're a relative or close friend of John the Baptizer or James. You see where I'm going with this? I mean, Yeshua didn't raise John the Baptizer when he was martyred at a very young age, and he didn't raise James, the brother of John, when Herod executed him. Why? He chose not to. Simplest answer. It wasn't his will to raise them. Some believers are very sick. Some believers die because that's the way the Sovereign Lord wants it. That's the only answer we have. He doesn't do everything the same. You know, people say, well, they were, he raised them. It's not fair. He should raise me. It's not about fair. It's about God. All right? We're called to submit to Yahweh's sovereign, providential will. Listen, whatever it is, that's our calling. And that's what we looked at earlier this morning. You know, our response is, thy will be done. It's going to be done. So it's not saying, God, go ahead and do what you want. No. It's saying when you know circumstances of life that you don't like, you're just saying, God, it's your will, and I'll learn to submit to it. Because that's what's important. It's submission to the providential will of God. Now let me ask you this. How does Yeshua's resurrection from his tomb differ from Lazarus' resurrection from the grave? Do what? One less day? Oh, okay, that's, that's true. There's a day difference in there. How else does it differ? Well, let's look at John 11.44. He says, His hands and His feet were bound with linen strips and His face was wrapped with a cloth. Lazarus was raised. He lived out the normal span of his life. And he died again. Right? He physically died. I mean, Yeshua, you know, and some theologians want to argue this wasn't really a resurrection, it was a resuscitation. I mean, you can argue over words if you want. I mean, he, he definitely was brought back to life. But it was just the physical life he had before he died. And when he died, he's gone again. Alright? But Yeshua's resurrection, he was raised to new life. He was raised never to die again. Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Alright? So Christ, not going to die. We also see this in Acts 13. It says, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Yeshua, as also was written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. 
So Lazarus was brought back to physical life. Yeshua was raised in newness of life. Lazarus was raised in a physical body, but Christ was raised in a spiritual glorified body. Christ didn't need to have His grave clothes unwrapped because He went right through them. And that's the difference that we see here. Lazarus, he's still all bound up. His tomb had to be opened. Christ is gone through the clothes, gone through the tomb before anybody even got there. Look at John 26 and 7. Then Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb. So they get the stone rolled away. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Yeshua's head not lying with the linen cloth but folded in a place by itself. So His glorified body, this body that Christ came out of the grave with, wasn't limited by the laws of physics like Lazarus was because it was still a physical body. They had to move the stone. They had to take off the clothes. But Yeshua, after His resurrection, is no longer bound by the laws of physics. And you know, His body is a lot like we see the angels in Scripture. He could appear. He could disappear. Remember 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha's servant is all worried because, oh my word, they're surrounding us and there's many more than them. we got nobody on our side and what happens? He opens his eyes and says, oh look at all, holy mackerel, we got a whole bunch of people on our side. Alright, he opened his eyes so he could see the angelic army. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Lazarus was raised back to a physical body. And when we think of a spiritual body, I'd always used to think of a disembodied spirit. But we need to think of something corporeal. Like, you could touch this body. That's what Paul's getting at. I used to think spiritual body was an oxymoron because I thought spiritual is non-material, body's material. But a spiritual body is a non-fleshly body, but it's corporeal. It's a body in the spirit realm, a body for the spirit realm. Now, in raising Lazarus from the dead, Yeshua is also demonstrating the validity of his own claim that he would rise again. Here's a guy who claims to rise again, a guy who claims to be able to raise the dead, and he raises them. This got their attention. This miracle also illustrates Yeshua's claims that he's going to rise people from the dead, eschatologically, at the end, at the last day. Now, and we'll look at all that next week as we get into the response of this. And you think about what you, how would you respond in this situation? I mean, you're there. You see this. You're part of the burial. I mean, you walk with them to the tomb and you put them in the tomb and you seal the tomb up. And, and then four days later, you're back there and you see this guy, as good as new, come out of the grave. How do you respond? Well, we'll get to that next week. But I think you would agree that the raising of Lazarus from the dead was a profound event in the life of Yeshua. Right? This is a big deal. This is the greatest miracle ever. Yet this remarkable miracle is missing from all the synoptic Gospels. They don't give you a hint that this miracle ever occurred. And they never mention that Yeshua had a friend named Lazarus that he loved. No mention of that. Now consider that Matthew was probably an eyewitness to the raising of Lazarus. This is surely a powerful, unforgettable experience, yet Matthew doesn't mention anything about this in his Gospel. 
Lazarus was big news, as we'll see in chapter 12. So why is it that the other Gospels don't even mention this? <laughs> Strangely enough, it turns out that there's another prominent figure in the life of Yeshua that the other three Gospels don't mention either. That's the disciple whom Yeshua loved. Is that a coincidence? They don't mention Lazarus. They don't mention the disciple who Yeshua. They don't mention this miracle at all. What makes this even more difficult is that this raising of Lazarus, as we're going to see next time, was the event that caused the leaders in Jerusalem to determine it's time to put this guy down. It's time to end this. And this resulted in Calvary. And yet, the synoptic Gospels don't even hint at this. Why is that? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, we know that You give life. We have experienced that, Father. And I pray that You'd help us to realize that this raising of Lazarus was simply a picture, a parable, a symbol of what You do in the spiritual realm. We are dead men. Corrupted. No ability of our own. And You come along and give us life. And call us to faith in Yourself. Father, I thank You for the clarity of this picture. Help us to realize that we are all like Lazarus before You called us. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Thank You for the gift of life. Amen.